This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He is black, and he was in the Ku Klux Klan. In the late 1970s, Ron Stallworth had just been named the first African-American detective in Colorado Springs, and he decided to infiltrate the local branch of the KKK. But when there was a delay in getting his Klan membership card, Stallworth made a phone call. Here's how that sounds in the new movie based on his life from Spike Lee, Black Klansman. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish. Italians and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. It was part of an elaborate sting. Stallworth conned Duke and his Colorado Springs followers on the phone while a white officer met them in person. The story stayed under wraps for decades until Stallworth wrote a book and Hollywood came calling. The real Ron Stallworth joined me from El Paso, Texas, where he's retired. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. This all happened in the 1970s, and I think it was much more harrowing than that clip from the movie trailer sounds. Uh, But I was amazed to hear that you actually talked to David Duke just recently. What was that about? Oh, he called me uh, concerned about his image, how he's going to be portrayed in this movie. He told me that he respected me and... uh, He uh, expressed his uh, respect and like for Spike Lee, but he's concerned about his image. Uh, We talked about Charlottesville. We talked about Donald Trump, whole range of issues. How was it to get that call? Uh, It felt strange. I was in my hotel room in New York, and out of the clear blue, I get the call, and it's the voice that I spoke with 40 years ago, and I recognized it immediately. Do you believe he really respects you and Spike Lee? I really don't care. And I know Spike doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, you basically played David Duke for a fool 40 years ago. He signed your Klan membership card. You talked to him often on the phone in those days. And I think you even served as his bodyguard for a day without him having any idea who you were. Do I have that right? You do. He acknowledged that the events took place. He basically was saying that his recollection of events is a lot different than mine. And I told him that my uh, recollection is based on the police reports that were written. And that was the basis for uh, how I wrote my book. So the cast of Black Klansmen did a live Q&A on Twitter the other night. This was before the L.A. premiere. They talked about meeting you on the day that they read through the script for the first time. The first voice we're going to hear is Laura Harrier, who plays your love interest. He had his KKK card. He still has it. He's a, yeah, he's a member. He carries it in his wallet. Yeah. No lie, no lie. He's a card-carrying member of the KKK. Signed by David Duke. So 40 years later, you really carry your KKK card, huh? I've carried it every uh, day since uh, I got it in January of 79. What does it mean to you? It's a memento of my career. And like I like to tell people, if I'm ever in a fatal car crash, some poor cop's going to come up on my mangled black body and go through my personal effects, find this card, and it's just going to freak him out. (laughs) Uh, You have a very twisted sense of humor, Ron. 
most cops do. Most cops do. Yeah, I think it, gallows humor, I suppose. Okay, back to the cast. This is Laura Harrier again and Topher Grace, who plays David Duke. And the actors are talking about the first script reading where you ended up describing these events to them in your own words. Hearing this whole thing come together for the first time. And that for me, that was when it really hit me like, I don't know, it, it made it real. It's story for like yeah. 45 minutes. And then we effectively, it? It, was, it was long. It went on for a while. <laughs> and maybe longer than that. And then we kind of told it back to him. It wasn't like an artistic experience I'd ever had before where he told it to us and then we kind of digested it and then we did a read-through for him. And, uh, I mean, this guy is a hero. To be sitting there uh, among the cast, uh, Spike Lee on one side of me, to hear them uh, reading the words I wrote in my book, recognizing that this was all going to come to life on the big screen. Very, uh, very special, very surreal moment. In 1978, <coughs> you were the first black police officer hired in Colorado Springs. You became... That's not true. Oh, that's not that's true? That's not true. No, it's not your fault. That myth has been floating around from the beginning of... Uh, the publicity for this movie. Oh, goodness. Uh, started by, I believe, uh, the studio. I was the first black detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Uh-huh. I was not the first black officer. One day you were in the office as an undercover cop reading the newspaper, looking for something that might spark an investigation, and you found an ad for the Klan with a P.O. box and a phone number and you wrote. What happened? Well, I wrote a note to uh, the P.O. box uh, using the language that they use, identifying myself as a uh, fellow uh, like-minded white supremacist. Told them I was interested in, in the Klan, wanted to uh, find out some more information about them. And I mistakenly, not mistakenly, I had a brain cramp that day. I signed my real name instead of my undercover name and gave them the undercover phone line that we used that back then was untraceable, and mailed it off. I wonder if the, the language came easily to you? In other words, was it difficult to try to fake that supremacist tone? When you've been called a n- like I had been over three times in my life and gotten in fights and kicked out of school for, it's not hard to talk like one of them. And I was a I was an experienced undercover investigator. When you work undercover, you're basically acting, and you have to put on a performance that is convincing to the target. And it wasn't hard at all. What were the results of having sent that letter? Uh, about a week or two later, I get a phone call from a gentleman that identified himself as uh, the local organizer, that he had gotten my note, that I had some uh, good ideas, and he wanted to know why I wanted to join the Klan. I told him that uh, I hated... Uh, and anybody else who isn't pure Aryan white like I am, and I want to do something to stop the abuse of the white race. His response was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? And that's when I said to myself, oh, hell, what am I going to do now? And I quickly uh, recovered and told him that I couldn't meet him right away, but I could in a week. We settled on a location down in Security, Colorado, and... uh, The investigation was off and running. Security Colorado, just outside of Colorado Springs. And my understanding is that you gave him a physical description, uh, obviously not of yourself, but of one of your fellow cops. Actually, I gave him a description of myself because uh, Chuck, the uh, white Ron Stallworth, 
Chuck is about my height, my weight, or was back then. Mm. And uh, I knew how he came to, to work dressed. He was the one that I was uh, selecting to uh, play me in this con game. The only thing I didn't, only thing I didn't say was that I was black. Right. <laughs> what What were you interested in investigating specifically? What What did you think the law enforcement interest in this was? Well, it was obvious. The Klan is a subversive group. It uh, commits domestic acts of terrorism. The very fact that they were recruiting through a classified ad in the Colorado Springs newspaper was of interest to me as a police officer. You don't want subversive groups in your town, and if they are, you want to know as much about them as you can. So my job as an intelligence officer was to gather that intelligence. So let's talk about your real partner. You've only ever identified him as Chuck. and uh, Yes. While you build the relationships with these clan members on the phone, he's out there meeting and talking with them. How did you guys keep your stories straight? Chuck had to know everything that I had been saying on the phone so that he could walk in and pick up a conversation based on what I had said. I had to know everything that Chuck was saying in the uh, face-to-face environment with them. And uh, we played this uh, little uh, maneuver for about seven and a half months of the undercover phase of the investigation. Will you give me an example, Ron, of where this really worked, where the coordination paid off? Well, Chuck went to a meeting that I had set up. During this meeting, uh, the local organizer showed Chuck his gun collection, 13 guns, uh, showed Chuck uh, the fact that he carried a, I believe it was a 9 millimeter or a 45 on his person at all times to protect himself against blacks. But during the course of this meeting, uh, something was said to Chuck that I wanted to follow up on after the meeting ended. I waited for about an hour and then uh, placed a phone call back to the local organizer. And uh, he immediately said, what's wrong with your voice? You sound different. So when he said that, I coughed, <coughs> and I said, um, I have a sinus infection. He said, oh, I get those all the time. Let me tell you what you need to do. And then he proceeded to prescribe a remedy for me, and that was the only time in this uh, investigation that my uh, voice being different than Chuck's was ever questioned. Huh. But of course, that intel on how these KKK members were armed was also a reminder of just how dangerous this mission was and that if something went wrong, your life was on the line potentially, Chuck's life was on the line? These guys were, they should have known from the very beginning that they were dealing with two people. Chuck and I have uh, two distinctively different voices, but they didn't. We basically were able to outwit them, if you will, simply because they were not the uh, brightest light bulbs in the socket. Uh, But we never lost sight of the fact that we were dealing with some potentially dangerous people. Let's get back to David Duke. How did you first meet him? I uh, placed a phone call to him uh, down in Louisiana. My my membership card was supposed to come within two weeks after uh, it was mailed off or received by them. And uh, I never got it in that time frame. So I decided to uh, bypass talking to the local organizer of the Colorado Grand Dragon, who is a Lakewood fireman. I decided to bypass them and go directly to uh, the Grand Wizard himself, David Duke. So I placed a call down to his office. He answered, confirmed who he was. I told him I was Ron Stallworth, a member of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK, 
and that I didn't have my card, and I had been told that I can't participate in Klan activities uh, until I had the card. He ruffled through some papers, and he finally said, oh, here it is. Uh, he said uh, he apologized. He said they had been having uh, some administrative problems, but uh, that he would personally process my application and get my uh, membership uh, card mailed to me. How did you wind up being his bodyguard? I came to work one day, and the chief of police basically informed me that uh, the visit that David Duke and his uh, minions in Colorado Springs were planning to uh, go on a publicity blitz to try to recruit new members, that he was getting death threats. Uh, There was a lot of protest groups. The chief told me that uh, he had no available manpower, uh, and therefore he was assigning me to be Duke's bodyguard while he was in town uh, because he didn't want anything to happen to him. How was that day for you? I enjoyed it. I met David. I did not give him my name. I simply introduced myself as a detective with Colorado Springs Police Department. I said, I I don't uh, agree with your philosophy or political ideology, but I am a professional, and to the best of my ability, I will uh, uh, do everything I can to keep you alive in my city. He thanked me. He shook hands. He gave me the Klan handshake. I sat in the uh, restaurant where he was having a luncheon meeting with uh, his followers. There were about 10 or 12 people there. Some had their wives or girlfriends, and uh, we anticipated at least half probably were armed. So uh, the potential for something happening was was present, but nothing did. I'm trying to square how polite David Duke is to you, you know, more recently and then in your interactions when you were his bodyguard in Colorado Springs. I'm trying to square that with the ugliness of the Klan, the violence of the Klan, It's mind-boggling. Nothing mind-boggling about it. Uh, He was on his side of the fence. I was on my side of the fence. I know the history or knew the history of the Klan, and David was uh, promoting it and in the process trying to change the image of the Klan. They were trying to make the Klan a political uh, movement. They talked about borrowing the play uh, from the playbook of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., ironically, in that uh, they wanted to register Klan members or white supremacists to uh, vote and uh, change America. So that was the aim of the Klan back then. Uh, It's still the aim of it now. Did anything come of your investigation? Yeah, we prevented three cross burnings. We identified uh, two top security clearance personnel at uh, NORAD. As a result, the Pentagon was called, and those two were transferred. As I understood it, they were going to be on a transport heading to what I was told was, quote-unquote, the North Pole. We identified uh, a plot. It wasn't really a plot, but they discussed stealing automatic weapons from the armory at Fort Carson for the purpose of arming themselves for the racial holy war that they all believe is going to happen. Among the people that they were talking to was the uh, head of the Posse Comitatus, far-right extremist group in Colorado Springs. This is some of the stuff that came out of this investigation. We achieved our goal. I think the case was sealed. Do I have that right? I wouldn't call it sealed. Uh, The case ended because uh, they trusted Ron Stallworth to such an extent and believed in him that they called me up one day and said, uh, we have to make a change in leadership and we've taken a vote 
and unanimously you have been voted to be the new local organizer of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK. Oh, my gosh. That's how convincing uh, you were. When I, yes, not only me, but uh, Chuck working cooperatively with me. And when I went to my chief, he said, let's shut it down now. Don't answer any more phone calls. Don't uh, go to any more meetings. He wanted Ron Stallworth Klansman to disappear. And he then said, uh, I want you to destroy all files of the uh, case because he didn't want anybody in Colorado Springs to find out that we had undercover cops into the group. I protested that to the best of my ability. He insisted on the destruction of the files. Uh, So I said, yes, sir. And my sergeant and I marched back to the office. I picked up the notebooks of reports and I walked out of the office and took them home with me in violation of department policy. I could have been fired had they found out, but I felt like this was a unique investigation. Those reports were evidence of the factuality of the investigation. And without it, no one would ever believe this thing took place. Ron, when did David Duke and those in the KKK find out that the Ron they were dealing with on the phone was black? Uh, when I retired from law from a 32-year law enforcement career in 2005, a Salt Lake Area newspaper wrote a report. The, uh, I was asked... Uh, What are some of the significant things that you've done in your career? I told her the story. She wrote her story commemorating my retirement in Utah law enforcement by focusing on the Colorado Springs KKK investigation. When it was published, it went viral. And one of the uh, people that contacted me was a syndicated columnist from the Miami Herald by the name of Leonard Pitts. Mr. Pitts called me up, wanted to know if my story was true. I said, yes, it is, and uh, told me he was going to write a column about me. But one of the things he did in researching uh, my story, he contacted David Duke directly and asked David if it was true. David said, uh, no, he's lying. Pitt said, if he's lying, how come he has a membership card signed by you? And David backtracked and said, well, we didn't do anything wrong. So David did uh, uh, learn in 2006 that he had been conned. In this interview, you've reflected on how members of the Klan back then in the Colorado Springs area were uh, high up in the community. They were they were at NORAD. They were, you know, in government. Did this open your eyes to the reach of the Klan, to the power of the people in the Klan? I wonder how it changed your perception of your own community. It didn't change my perception in any way, uh, shape or form. Uh, Colorado Springs is a good community. It was then, it is now. It's a typical all-American community. And in being a typical all-American community, they had issues of race, probably still have issues of race. So that's not unusual. And if you're going to have issues of race, uh, especially where black people are concerned, you're going to have uh, people from the white supremacy movement uh, who wear their ugly heads in your community and try to, uh, quote-unquote, take America back or uh, make America great again, which is nothing more than code word for make America white again, in which uh, they dominate uh, blacks and we are subservient to them. Those days are over. They will never, ever return. Blacks no longer fear people wearing white robes and sheets and burning crosses. Uh, We look upon them as clowns 
and we will deal with them uh, in the appropriate fashion. Which is? Whatever they dictate, uh, we, will, we, we will respond accordingly. We read, it, read into that whatever you will. So this film went into wide release last Friday. Uh, Spike Lee planned it that way because it was the anniversary of the white nationalist rally that turned deadly in Charlottesville, Virginia last year. The film ends with scenes of that protest. Ah, then we've got the the white supremacist rally in D.C. a year later. Where is your head right now? Where's my head in terms of this rally? In terms of this rally, in terms of the country right now? Uh, the country is in a bad way because of the idiot that occupies the White House. Uh, with a wink and a nod, he gives license to these people to be who they are and do the things that they do without condemning them. And uh, it's disgraceful that he has failed in his duty to be the moral conscience of this country. As for the Unite the Right uh, rally, whenever uh, people like that rear their ugly heads, law enforcement needs to be vigilant. They need to be aggressive in stopping them and uh, don't take any nonsense from them whatsoever. The president has tweeted, the riots in Charlottesville a year ago resulted in senseless death and division. We must come together as a nation. I condemn all types of racism and acts of violence. Peace to all Americans. It's a lie. The first thing he said after Charlottesville was there were good people on both sides. He basically tried to find an equivalency between white supremacists marching yelling, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil, old German uh, marching chant from uh, the World War II era. He uh, basically tried to equate them as being the equal of the nonviolent counter-protesters. His words, the first words he says, are the words that everyone should pay attention, not what he says a year later. It took him about a day or two before he uh, reversed himself uh, last year. Ron, do you miss being a cop? Uh, No, I had a good career. Uh, It ended when it did. I was glad that it did. And I'm very proud of the career that I had. I'm so grateful for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Ron Stallworth retired after 32 years in law enforcement in several Western states, including Colorado. He wrote the book Black Klansman. Producer Spike Lee has turned it into a movie of the same name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A single hailstorm this year north of Denver cost $276 million. This was in June and was the eighth costliest hailstorm in the state. The all-time most expensive hit last year. It caused $2 billion in damage. And of course, just last week, a storm walloped Colorado Springs, shutting down the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo for several days. Should we expect hail to cost us more in the years to come? Ian Jamanko is a research meteorologist with the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. He joins us from Boulder, where he's attending the first ever North American hail workshop. Hi, Ian. Hi. What's the trend line? Are hailstorms getting more expensive? 
Well, it, in terms of looking at the, the loss numbers, uh, most definitely um, we're seeing a, a pretty much a, a big uptick in the, the total amount of damage that hailstorms produce. Uh, 2018 will likely become almost, uh, I think, the 11th straight year in which if you total up all those uh, those, those losses, uh, we'll end up over the $10 billion mark total across the U.S. Uh, and that's 11 straight years of eclipsing that mark. Now, is that a function of more hailstorms or more developments to pummel where hail falls? It's really the latter is the, the one of the larger driving forces. We don't see a whole lot of uptick in the, uh, the number of storms themselves, uh, but we have bigger targets. You know, the, the size of our homes has increased uh, almost you know, close to about 800 square foot over the last two decades in terms of an average square footage of a home. We also build much closer together. I mean, we all know uh, the big suburban developments where you have houses that are very close to each other. And we, we really try to cram as many as in, in that surface area as we can. Uh, so the targets that hailstorms have are definitely getting larger, uh, giving them much more opportunities to be highly damaging. And is it that that density is moving into places where hail falls and that there were, weren't developments before? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at the Denver metro area, that's a really good example uh, of kind of the, the suburban sprawl a little bit. Dallas-Fort Worth is another one. So if you take a location, um, you know, 10 years ago on the north side of Dallas, per se, that, that might have been farmland 10 years ago, but now is, is a very dense suburban home. Uh, you've definitely put all of those in the path of, a, of an area that is susceptible to very large hail, as the same is out here on the uh, out here on the front range. What about automobiles? How do they factor into the damage costs, or is it really in roofs? Yeah, auto auto is certainly a, a high uh, dollar damage driver. On the the building side, roofs is the the big component of that. Uh, auto side is actually a little interesting. We do see a, a reduction in hail claims for auto during nighttime hail events as more people have their, their cars in their garage. Um, auto is where any advances in forecasting and warning of hailstorms give people a chance to potentially get their vehicles under cover. Uh, maybe we can even look at new technologies to, to protect vehicles and cut down there. Now, in the time scales that we can forecast on, even thinking out hours and minutes on that kind of time scale, there's not much we can do to our roof. Um, but we can take advantage of more resilient products that are out there. Yeah, you hinted at that for automobiles. Why don't we start there? What new technologies might protect my car? Is it what the car is made out of, or am I putting on like a hail blanket? It's kind of that, that idea. There are there are some things out there like hail blankets. There's some inflatable devices that, that could be used. Uh, I think now we're, we're still starting to scratch the surface of that. And right now, I would say we don't quite have the, the forecast down to the level of precision I think we need for people to be able to take those action steps safely. Uh, that's, a, that's a key word there. Um, so auto definitely can take advantage of those improvements as we understand hailstorms better and be able to essentially warn on them more effectively. Interesting. This is why better forecasting is key. And what technologies might make a roof more resilient, given that they're so expensive to replace? That's right. So there's a set of impact-rated products out there that are tested to set test standards. However, they're still their market share is not huge, and they are what is the current class of hail-resistant products. So that can be asphalt shingles. They're impact-rated asphalt shingles. There's also tile roofs, metal roofs. Uh, there's some new composite materials that, that look promising out there. In fact, driving in uh, to Boulder, I saw a neighborhood with uh, composite roofing materials. 
Um, but part of that is is updating the testing that those products undergo uh, to ensure that they do meet those uh, performance criteria once we get them out in the field. But right now, I'd say you know the market share still isn't huge. I'm surprised insurance companies aren't clamoring for that to change. Well, some companies will offer each each company to themselves will will come up with the way they want to try to get uh, increased market share, foster uh, more resilient products. Uh, the insurance industry is regulated, you know, state by state, so that's a factor uh, that does come into play here. But in some municipalities, some states, you can find those incentives out there. You should talk to your insurance agent uh, when you are in the the market for a new roof, either by you know, the age of the product, or you had a hailstorm come along. Um, oh. That should be the first thing you do. Talk to your agent and see what see what they can recommend. Well, it's interesting. A few years back, after a pretty vicious hail season, we got, in my condo building, uh, a letter from our insurer saying, well, we're not renewing your policy. There's just too much damage going on in that part of the world. Uh, is that likely to happen more and more, where insurers just say, meh, we're out? You know, I, I don't know. Um, each company will have to make those decisions and then play within the, the regulatory environment and have to, to evaluate their own book of business. That's, that's really kind of what it boils down to. Okay. But as we actually understand more about hailstorms, I think you'll, you'll be able to get a better picture of what that risk looks like. And for the insurance industry, it's being able to understand the, the financial impact, but also on the reinsurance side, being able to have those risk transfer tools available. We, we have them for hurricanes. Like, uh, catastrophe bonds, there's reinsurance products that can help protect the insurers from these really big events. Huh. Um, but we're just not there on the severe thunderstorm side. The, the research that drives these, there's a lot of science behind it, and it's just not very mature. And that's one of the big reasons why I'm out in Boulder right now with uh, this hail workshop that's going on. Yeah, it's so interesting how uh, very much the science is related to the everyday when it comes to hail and to our and to our lives and our roofs. Uh, what role does climate change play in the discussions there? Uh, do we know if yep. hail's going to get worse because of it? We're, we're starting to scratch the surface of what our changing climate starts to look like in its effect on hail. It's kind of a push and pull between a couple different atmospheric factors, uh, one of which is the amount of kind of warm, humid air available for thunderstorms. We know that's that's probably going to increase. The other is the amount of wind shear. is essentially how the wind changes with height in the atmosphere, and that may decrease in, in some locations. So it's kind of a push and pull between the two factors that control uh, hail development within thunderstorms. Now, we've had some new research that was actually presented this morning at the workshop showing oh. in the southeast United States, we might just see a, a slight decrease in the number of hail events. However, the research showed that hail sizes, when we do have hail, might actually get larger. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, that's a trade-off. Yeah, probably and... not what some people want to see, and it is it is uh, about as clear as mud right now. Hmm. So that, too, still must be studied. What are you most excited to nerd out on there at that hail conference, Ian? I am just uh, kind of blown away to see all of this science in one room. This is the first time we've ever done this in North America. Our European colleagues uh, know about the hail threat. They have a lot higher population density than even we do, so their dollar losses are even higher. They've done two of these, so uh, we had to catch up back here in the States. Um, but to see all the science that's starting to be brought to bear on this problem and really to recognize uh, that it is a problem. And that's why you and I are talking, because we know – uh, hail losses are huge. They interrupt our lives. They, 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 they cause headaches and not to mention the damage that comes with them. 
How often does hail hurt people? You know, it, it's fairly rare that you would see a report of injuries. Now, we can go back, right back to a couple weeks ago in the, uh, the Colorado Springs event yeah. uh, where we did have some injuries. Um, it's not usually thought of as a life safety issue. However, I think we may need to change our outlook on that, seeing what we saw a couple weeks ago. If you are caught outside in two-inch hail, that can, that can harm you uh, significantly. Um, I saw a photo of an, an elderly woman who was in their car in a, in a wind-driven hailstorm that, that really was, was injured badly. And that, uh, one, breaks my heart. But two, um, we can do a better job forecasting these things to try to get you know, our friends and neighbors out of the way and everybody inside. Thanks for sharing your enthusiasm for hail or preventing hail damage with us, Ian. Oh, you're most welcome and glad to. He is Ian Jamanko with the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, joining us from the first ever North American Hail Workshop that's going on in Boulder. As students return to class, school districts across Colorado are still trying to hire enough bus drivers to actually get them there. Pueblo, Durango, Denver, Breckenridge, Vail, Cherry Creek, Lyman, and Pooter schools are among the districts facing a shortage. For some perspective, CPR's Nathan Heffel spoke with Greg Rabenhorst, he's superintendent of District RE3J in Weld County. Greg, your district covers around 480 square miles in Weld County with schools in Keensburg, Lock Bowie, and Hudson, and you teach around 2,500 students. But this year you're having trouble finding enough bus drivers to get kids to school, huh? Well, what I can tell you is, and what I will tell parents is that we will ensure that every student who wants a ride will get a ride, um, you know, assuming they're within our boundaries and have a, can get to the routes that we offer. But... It could mean if we have a shortage of drivers, you know, when, when we know our actual numbers of students who will be riding, it could be that we have um, some delayed routes where we have to double route and go back for students. We're going to try to avoid that. That's our last resort. We hope uh, we have small activity-style buses that we can have uh, people drive who don't have a CDL. Of course, the capacity is much lower on those. But that's our first backup plan to having to rerun a route. And a CDL is a commercial driver's license, which is required to uh, drive one of those large school buses. But not having enough drivers isn't a new thing for you and and maybe some other school districts, is it? Uh, For the last several years, really, we have experienced a shortage of drivers um, as we compete with oil and gas industry and other uh, companies that require CDL drivers. But this year, it has been particularly difficult to find drivers through the summer. And so we have, you know, tried recruiting techniques, uh, various methods, uh, but there just doesn't seem to be enough in the workforce at this point. And I know that the situation is not unique to our district. There are driver shortages across the state. You see the signs up, the buses with signs on them uh, pretty much everywhere you go. Um, So we know that it's not unique to us, but this year in particular, we uh, are very close to the start of the year and realize that we would like to be in a better situation we are, than we are currently. But because we're a publicly funded and under the school finance formula, we, there's only a certain amount of revenue that we um, can get under that f- formula. Um, all of your personnel costs have to fall within what you can afford. 
So that's basically why we can't compete with the private sector market. Oil and gas companies and other construction companies, whoever requires those CDL licenses, they can just pay more money and significantly more money. So is the economy uh, booming an issue here, where maybe where the economy was a little bit less strong, you had more people maybe looking for something like being a a part-time school bus driver because of that lack of available jobs? Sure. That actually is an issue. I mean, we all like to experience a strong economy, but when unemployment is as low as it is, um, there just isn't enough, there aren't enough applicants in the, you know, in the workforce to apply for jobs. So maybe people who can't find another job might find a bus driver, for example, position to be appealing to them uh, because there's lack of other positions. But in this market where there are just lots of jobs that are unfilled across uh, what seems to be across the economy, then we even lose out more when we can't compete with, uh, you know, the hourly rates. So how are parents in your district reacting to all of this? We, like I said, we've struggled in the past. We struggled at the start of the year last year. This year, I was just more insistent that we communicate more in advance, more proactively and transparently what our situation is so that no one's caught off guard on the first day. And I think that led to some concern by parents, which it should, but I I still feel like it's more important to communicate uh, transparently and in advance what the needs are and get the word out that, you know, we're not just saying that we have a shortage, we actually do have a shortage. And if people know about that, then they're more likely to perhaps help or spread the word. Are you starting to see uh, uh, maybe applicants come forward being like, okay, I can do this if if you're desperately in need of help? We actually have had four additional applicants. I don't know for sure how qualified all of the applicants are, but it's encouraged that we, that we have had the applicants. So, yes, I think it has helped that the word is out. That is Greg Ravenhorst, superintendent of District RE3J in Weld County. Going back to school can be an intense time, especially for kids with autism and for their parents. Author Susan Baer has written a book to help children understand classmates who are on the spectrum. She had help from Jane Stein, whose son Elliot sparked the idea. They spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. You both live in Boulder, and Jane, you approached Sue to write this book. She's a children's book author. What was it about Elliot's experience growing up that made you want a book like this to be written? Well, since the time that Elliot was in, I would say, first grade to the time that he went to middle school, I had this thought that the kids in the classroom would benefit from knowing a little bit more about why Elliot did certain things and had trouble with shirts and was always twisting and sucking on the shoulders of his shirts and other sort of behaviors, these perseverative behaviors. And I thought if kids just understood that, they would understand him and they, you know, would have accepted him more. He was never bullied. And I would say he was reasonably accepted. But I just felt that a lot of other kids would really get those kids and why they exhibit those behaviors. How did you figure out Elliot had autism? Well, I was fortunate in that I was best friends with a woman who our older children were born together. 
And as that child developed and was diagnosed when he was three or four, I had just walked that journey with her. And so right away when Elliot was probably two months old, I I just had a feeling he was acting the same way in terms of being in constant motion, not really landing on things appropriately and staying focused on that object. You know, we were very fortunate because with early, early intervention like that, you can really make a difference in the outcome. And we, while we weren't able to get a diagnosis because he was too young, we just operated as if. And so I would constantly say to uh, any sort of physician, let's say he did have autism, what would be one thing that we should be doing? You know, and the advice is always that you deal with the, you know, behaviors and the symptoms. So in our case, that was OT, PT, listening therapy, social skills therapy, and those kind of things. So the boy in the book often feels like an outcast in school. Two boys are standing looking at Elliot, who's sitting on the ground, and he's putting something in his mouth. Could you read the section on page 20? And the book is from Elliot's perspective, I should say. At recess, Sam said, want to play kickball? Games like kickball have too many rules. I like my own rules. I walked in circles around the playground instead. While I was walking around, I saw some bright stones on the ground. I sat down in the dirt and put some of the stones in my mouth. Two boys walked by me, and I heard one say, What's wrong with Elliot? That hurt my feelings. Where did that scene come from? Is it based on Elliot, uh, you know, Jane's son, or someone else? Well, we looked at a lot of behaviors by a lot of children, and we distilled them all down into one boy. So Elliot might have put stones in his mouth. I'm not sure. But somewhere, someone on the spectrum has done that. There's one character in the book, Sam, who stands up for Elliot. Jane, did Elliot have classmates that took him under their wing and helped him out? Yeah, there were always angels in every classroom. And Sam, there was a real Sam. And he, I just remember when we moved to Boulder, Elliot was in first grade. And Sam was the first kid that asked Elliot over after school for a play date. So the character named Sam is really the kind of the hero in the book. Sue, let me have you read one more passage, which has to do with Sam and Elliot and another child. It's on page 35. When I finished my Lego project, I showed it to Sam. He said, wow. Can I show it to the other kids? The room got really quiet. Then it got noisy. All the kids said, Dude, no way. Awesome. And look at the castle Elliot built. And Elliot, you're amazing. Then Sam looked at Joe and said, You should leave Elliot alone. So Joe is the bully in the story. And Sue, it sounds like you see classmates of kids with autism as being critical to helping kids out with the condition. Oh, absolutely. The whole point of the book is to foster acceptance and prevent bullying. So our thought was, when children read this book, they'll get a good idea of what it's like to be Elliot or a kid like Elliot, and they will be kinder and more inclusive. And Sue, I imagine you didn't know a lot about autism before you undertook this. Were you able to get into the mind of a child that might have autism? I I believe so. Um, Doing my research, I just found out 
a whole lot of information that I had never known. And the sensory overload piece was especially meaningful to me. Actually, we do an exercise with the kids where we have them all make different sounds, like an airplane or a car going by or footsteps, just a whole bunch of noise. And then I ask them to do a math problem, and half the kids don't hear the question. And that's sort of what it's like to sift through all this noise in the brain of some people with autism. So yeah, I think I got a greater understanding of behavior. And I became not that I was ever terribly judgmental, but I became more tolerant when I saw a a child acting up in a grocery store, for example. I've heard stories about folks with children with autism and they're in a restaurant and something's happening with their child and other people are looking at them askance and critically. And I wonder if that ever happened to you, Jane. Um, More times than I can count. And I think that's probably one of the universal experiences of families with a child on the spectrum. Elliot had this funny thing he liked to do in restaurants. If there was a candle, really loved putting things into the candle and watching it sort of melt. But a lot of times it was just, you know, inability to sit still and needing to get up and walk around. You know, let's face it, a lot of kids wouldn't want to sit in a chair for two hours while the adults are talking about politics. So judge me or not, that's when iPads were first coming around. And um, it was a lifesaver for us. Tembo Grandin, who's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and is on the autism spectrum herself, wrote a foreword for your book. Um, She writes about how kids with autism need to be stretched to do things they're uncomfortable with. And Jane, I wonder how much you did this with Elliot. Well, we did it a lot. So I'll give you an example. When Elliot was a freshman in high school, I decided to send him off for a service vacation in Thailand where essentially he had to fly by himself to L.A., change planes, and sort of navigate his way to this group. And at that point, he had never been much on his own. And everyone thought I was crazy, including my mother. But he came back a changed kid. He came back incredibly mature. His language was noticeably improved. And Temple was interesting. She and I had a long conversation on the telephone, and her big thing is that parents not allow their child to continually stay in the places that they are. In other words, she tells a story about her mother not allowing her to really be a super picky eater, her mother requiring her to, you know, participate in social things. Afterwards, she was allowed to be in her room to sort of chill out, but only for 30 minutes. So she has a real belief that parents of people on the spectrum really need to push those kids out of the comfort zone. Sue, Jane, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Susan Baer, the author of Just Elliot, a children's book about autism, and Jane Stein, whose son Elliot inspired the book. They live in Boulder. Finally today, rising country singer Tyler Dial is enjoying a career that he sort of stumbled into. As a high school senior in Texas, he was recruited to play soccer at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, but he tore his ACL before the big state game. That's when Dial picked up a guitar and decided to pursue his music dreams. 
The 22-year-old was recently named to Rolling Stone's 10 New Country Artists You Need to Know. He lit a cigarette and blew out the smoke She was sitting there, sitting on a rum and a coke He was a summer storm that just wouldn't stop She used her heart like a lightning rod They were bound to go down in flames or history The night that fire met gasoline The night that fire met gasoline She said this town's too slow for me to feel alive He said I've got a Silverado him like a lover as the sky grew black Yeah, they never saw it coming and they never looked back Tyler Dial, the would-be Air Force Academy soccer star, whose unexpected music path has worked out okay for him. Dial's summer tour is making its way through Colorado. You can catch him perform a free concert tomorrow at Skyline Park in downtown Denver. That's Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.